Greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every crooked path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In our last broadcast, we were looking at the necessity for laying a proper foundation. We looked at the comparison that the Lord made between the wise builder and the foolish builder, where he said, the wise builder is the one who built his house upon a rock, and the foolish builder is the one who built his house upon sand. Now, both houses had the same conditions come at them, but the one of the wise builder stood because it was built upon the rock, and the one of the foolish builder crashed, and great was his crash because it was built on nothing. And then the Lord used that illustration to describe the one who hears his word and heeds or does the word. And he says that that person is the one who truly is a wise builder. That's the one who has built a proper foundation. Because the challenges of life come. Economic downturns take place. All the kinds of things that we least expect in life, they do happen. But if your life is built on a proper foundation, it will endure. It will stand. It is possible, for example, to be bereaved and yet not lose your mind. The same conditions that come upon those who are not saved come upon those who are saved. The difference is that those who are truly saved have the Lord Jesus Christ to hold on to as a proper foundation. So we made it clear that if we have to lay a foundation over and over again, it means that the foundation that was there was bad. It was not properly laid. And so the essence of laying a proper foundation cannot be overemphasized. Today, less and less Christians understand the essence of Christianity. Many people begin to chase after, they want to be rich, they want to be great, they want to become something important. They think of themselves, and that's not the essence of Christianity. Christianity is all about Christ. And so if a person is a Christian, it means that he's in Christ and Christ is in him. And his entire life is going to be based on what Christ wants him to do. We then looked at the letter written to the Jews who had become Christians. And the issues they had, even though they had become Christians, they faced challenges. And it was difficult for them to really understand the fact that one who came as them, the Lord Jesus Christ, was indeed the Christ. And that it was him that has brought salvation to them. And so there was the need for the writer of Hebrews to distinguish between Christ and angels. Saying that Christ is greater than the angels. And that Christ is greater than even Moses whom they, they revered. And also of Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. And then he got to the place where he was saying that the priesthood of Christ is after the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. One who was without father, without mother, and so on and so forth. And then he went on to say that there is much I would have loved to say to you concerning Christ, Melchizedek, and the priesthood of Melchizedek as it relates to Christ. He says, but because you are dull of hearing, it is difficult for me to be able to explain these things. And that was where he went on to talk about the fact that they who haven't been saved for some time, now need to be taught again the first principles of Christ when they ought to be teaching others what the first principles of Christ is about. Not just because they were dull of hearing, but their hearts had been hardened. Their hearts had become impervious to the word of God. They would not allow the word of God to come in to their hearts. You see, the goal of Christianity is to arrive at the place of maturity. So we're saying you can no longer be babes. You are a babe if you are carnal. You are a babe if you are speaking about my church, my church doctrine, my pastor, and so on and so forth. You are a babe. And it means that you are still feeding on milk. But maturity belongs to those people who are feeding on strong meat. 
people who by reason of use of the word of God have exercised themselves to know the difference between right and wrong and to choose always what is right. The idea is that as we grow as Christians, we are not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Today, there are so many babies around the place who are just tossed to and fro. They cannot even discern who a false prophet is from who a, pro a true prophet is. They cannot discern who a false pastor is from who a true pastor is. They cannot even discern what a true church should be. So we have all kinds of things happening. And then we have even pastors who you would have said these are people who are truly serving God are now manipulating the lack of understanding of these people and beginning to teach false things. So in order to achieve maturity, we must lay a proper foundation. Every Christian must have a proper foundation. This is the foundation that the early disciples had when the church was growing and disciples were being multiplied. The people who could stand when persecution came, who were able to stick to God, and so on and so forth. It was because of the foundation that was laid. And we also now need to lay that foundation. After the foundation has been laid, the building can now be erected. If you lay a poor foundation, it doesn't matter how magnificent the building is. When the challenges of life come, it will crash. There are many Christians whose lives are crashing left, right, and center. So for the Christian, the foundation is Christ through and through. Everything that is the layer of that foundation is Christ through and through. The Bible talks about the laying of the first principles of the oracles or of the doctrine of Christ. When we talk of doctrine, we're not just talking of teachings. Doctrines are basically teachings that are sacrosanct. Nothing is going to change those things. However, included in doctrines are also the lifestyle. So we are not just talking of a teaching, but also a lifestyle. When people say they are teaching doctrine, they must also manifest the lifestyle of that doctrine. And you cannot bring something that is not biblical and say it's doctrine. Doctrine is always biblical, is always scriptural, and it is sacrosanct. Nothing is going to change it. It is this ABC of Christianity that we said was necessary and essential. And then we made mention of the six of them as enumerated in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 2. Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms in plural form, the doctrine of laying on of hands, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, and the doctrine of eternal judgment. If these foundations are not firmly laid in our lives, such lives will crash. We are having people who are engaging in idolatry without knowing that that's what they are doing. We are having people who are evil and they don't know that what they are doing is wrong. We have people who are hating others, and they don't know that that is wrong. So in this broadcast, we want to begin with laying the first of the layers of the first principles of the doctrine of Christ, that is repentance from dead works. Now, there's a difference between repentance from dead works and repentance from sin. Repentance from sin must have taken place before we talk about repentance from dead works. When you repent from sin, you are saved. You are brought into salvation. And then, after that, you are now taught repentance from dead works, which is what we're about to do now. When you were saved, the flesh was killed. I think I mentioned this some broadcasts back. However, the flesh had laid eggs, its passions and its affections. Repentance from dead works seeks to deal with those things. When we look at repentance from dead works, we shall be looking at the word repentance. We shall look at the phrase dead works. And then we'll put it all together and discuss repentance from dead works. This way, we'll be laying the proper foundation from the beginning 
once and for all. So let's focus on repentance for this broadcast. Repentance itself, we are going to break down into several groups which will last us for some time. In discussing repentance, we are going to look at what repentance is, what repentance is not, examples of true, false, or no repentance whatsoever. And then we're going to also discuss why people don't repent or why people repent falsely. In this particular broadcast, we'll be discussing what repentance is. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 to 11. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did not regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So Paul, writing here by the Spirit of God, is giving us an inkling into what repentance truly is. He had written a letter to them concerning a particular issue, and he felt that the letter was too harsh. But then when he saw what the letter produced, it produced an action that showed that they were truly repentant. They had a sorrow after a godly sort, not after a worldly sort. So that the essence of repentance is that we hear a message that convicts us that we have done something wrong. And as a result of that message that has brought conviction to us, we would change our actions. If there is a message that comes, and I say I am convicted by that message, but I have not changed my actions, then there's no repentance taking place. So the first thing we must understand here is that there has to be a conviction that what has been said to me, which may seem to be harsh, is actually the truth and that I really need it. In Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 12, is the story of King David after he had messed with Bathsheba and had even been involved in the death of her husband. And life continued with him. As far as he was concerned, he thought everything was okay. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan went and told David a parable. Let me just read some portions there. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drink from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man and he said to Nathan as the Lord lives the man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity then Nathan said to David 
You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and it shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but i will do this thing before all israel before the son so david said to nathan i have sinned against the lord and nathan said to david the lord also has put away your sin you shall not die however because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the lord to blaspheme the child also who is born to you shall surely die then nathan departed to his house and lost struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Let's stop there. David had taken Uriah's wife, had slept with her, and she had become pregnant. In a bid to cover up what he had done, he got Uriah to return from the war front and to go and sleep with his wife. But Uriah refused. Uriah said, I cannot go and sleep with my wife when Israel is at war. Got the guy drunk, the guy refused to go. The guy said, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to go and sleep with my wife. So when David realized that there was no way he was going to hide this thing from Uriah, he now sent Uriah back with a letter and told Joab, the chief of the army staff, to send Uriah to the hottest part of the battle and then to withdraw the men from him so that Uriah would be alone. That way Uriah was killed. Once Uriah was killed, David took Bathsheba into the house. Everybody thought that, oh, the king was such a nice person. He has provided a place for the wife of Uriah, his officer. And life just continued. David continued to do whatever he was doing as king. Probably would even pick up the Psalms, would write some Psalms, would play on the harp, will sing to God, will pray. And so he, life just continued, but he had sinned. And so what did God do? God sent Nathan, the prophet of God, to go to David and to narrate to David a parable. And Nathan told David that parable and David passed instant judgment. And Nathan said, but you are the man. And I'm sure David would have been in order. What do you mean I'm the man? He said, but you took Uriah's wife. You got her pregnant. You see, when we are doing things like this, we think God does not see, but God sees. The fact that God has kept silent does not mean that he approves of your sinful conduct. And so we find here again that to bring David to his senses, God had to use a parable. And then David was the one who was passing judgment on himself, thinking that he was passing judgment on somebody. He didn't know that he was passing judgment on himself. God brings us to the realization that what we have done is wrong. It is that realization that will lead us to admit that we have actually done something. That admittance is a confession. Let me read Psalm 51, which is the psalm that came out of David's confession to God. Psalm 51. I'll just read the first few, maybe first four or so verses. Have mercy upon me, O God according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I acknowledge 
my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Two important things there. He acknowledged his transgression. He acknowledged his sin and that that sin was against God. We are discussing repentance generally here. So most times it is applicable to sin. But repentance here is also applicable to dead works. But let's look at repentance in general. There is, first of all, a realization that I have sinned. That is the result of a conviction in my heart that I have sinned. That conviction in my heart is going to get me to acknowledge that I have indeed sinned. That acknowledgement will lead me to admitting verbally, vocalizing that acknowledgement which is in my heart. I give it a voice and say, indeed, I have sinned. Let's read Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is the parable of the prodigal son. And there's something I want to draw out there. Luke chapter 15. And I'm going to be reading from verse 11. Then he said, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, telling the parable, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed into a far country, and then wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, when he came to the realization that what am I doing here in a pigsty, wanting to eat pig's food? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And in verse 20, which is crucial, it says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You can continue to read the rest for yourself. What is important here again is that it got to a point where the young man realized. The Bible says he came to himself. So it is crucial that we understand that there must be a realization that what I am doing or the direction in which I am going is wrong. That realization is a conviction. It is that conviction that I have as a result of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit on me, putting that word in me to say, what I have done is wrong. I admit it. I realize it that it's wrong. Then there is an acknowledgement of that fact that indeed I am wrong. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10, this is what is being spoken here. It says there, let me read from verse 8. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The heart 
is where we come to that acknowledgement that indeed I have done something wrong. And then with the mouth, I admit. A confession means a thorough admittance of something that I am thoroughly convinced. Let me use that expression. Thoroughly convinced to be true. In other words, if I am not convinced that it is true, then my confession will be false. If, for example, someone were to come to me and say to me, so and so person said you did something wrong, go and apologize to him. Unless I am convinced that I did something wrong, my apology is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything because I will still do that same thing since I don't accept that what I did was wrong. But if they say to me, what you did was wrong, and I say, I'm not going to apologize. And the man says, but this is what you did. Don't you know that what you did was wrong? If I keep on and say, no, I, I don't agree. He might want to show me that what I've done is wrong and bring me to the place where I would actually admit and accept that indeed it is wrong. At that point in time, when I go to apologize, I am being truthful in my apology. I'm not just apologizing so that there will be peace. There are many people who just go to repent so that at least the people who took me to church will not feel bad. No, that's not repentance. You are not repenting to a man. You are repenting before God. You must accept the fact that is laid before you that you are a sinner. That is talking of repentance from sin. That you are indeed a sinner. And you must acknowledge the fact that you are truly a sinner by the act, the way you have been living. It is then that you can confess and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I watch a lot of TV programs of pastors preaching. They share some messages, sometime on money, sometime on becoming great, sometime on healing and so on and so forth. And then when they end, they come to the latter part of the program and say, you have heard the message now. If you want to give your life to Christ, I want you to say this prayer after me. There is no correlation. The man has not been brought to a realization that is a sinner. So what is he giving his life to Christ for? And there are so many people like that who say that they have repented. But the truth is they have not. Because you will see later that the act of admitting that confession is what leads to conversion. There must be a change. If there is no change, then nothing has taken place. Let me read Psalm 32, verse 3 to 5. This is David speaking about his sins. Let me read from verse 1. It says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That is whose, whom God overlooks their sin, whom God will, will take away the sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. So until you have come to the acknowledgement and admittance, nothing is going to happen. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, let's remember we are just discussing repentance alone here. Proverbs 28, verse 18, and it's good because we are building a proper foundation. Part of that foundation is to ask ourselves, how did you get born again? Did you repent of sin when you claimed you were born again? Or you just wanted to become rich as the message went ahead? Or you wanted to become great? Or you wanted to become known? Or you wanted a healing? Or you wanted the witches in your village to leave you alone? The reason why the Lord Jesus Christ came was to deal with sin in our lives. So the issue of true repentance that brings us to Christ is dealing with the issue of sin. I must realize that I am a sinner and that my sin is against God. 
I must acknowledge it in my heart. I must be convinced and be convicted that I'm a sinner. Then I will admit that I'm a sinner. Proverbs 28 verse 13. He who covers his sins, he who hides his sins, who acts as if he is not a sinner, will not prosper. So those prosperity preachers who are telling you that you can prosper when you are hiding sin is a false teaching. You cannot prosper when you are living in sin. Any prosperity that you have while you are living in sin is a fattening by Satan for the day of your destruction. That is why it is important for you to realize that having money is not synonymous with God being with you. No, there are many people who are sinners who don't even know God, who are very, very wealthy. Wealthier than you a hundred times over, if not a thousand times over. But they are sinners. So having money doesn't mean that God is with you. What is important is, has sin been dealt with in your life? Have you acknowledged that you're a sinner? And then it goes on to say, but whoever confesses, whoever admits, confession means to admit, to thoroughly admit. Thoroughly admit means that you are not going to admit one thing and then go back again. No, to thoroughly admit without any equivocation. You are not going to say, well, you know, there are some sorries that you say, I'm sorry, but no, this one is, I'm sorry. I did something wrong. It's godly sorrow. It's not worldly sorrow. When we begin to discuss what repentance is not, we'll come to that distinction. But for now, he says, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So our admittance on what we have acknowledged will lead us to two important things. Number one, we will see the wrong way or the wrong that we have done as completely unacceptable to God. David said, it is against you, O Lord, that I have sinned. We would see that it is God we sinned against, not a church, not a pastor, not a brother, but against God. Now, having seen that what we have done wrong is against God, we will not loathe, if truly I admit is wrong, I will loathe and forsake it, that is, I will hate that thing. And forsake doing that thing. So in the matter of sin, for example, I must see that my sinful lifestyle is contrary to God. It is something that is not acceptable to God. So if I want to have a relationship with God, I must renounce and denounce it. I must hate sin and forsake sin. i give you an illustration. When I was in university, I wasn't a Christian and would go to female halls and will hear some Young lady say, that boy, I don't like him. I don't want to have anything to do with him again and blah, 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 and all kinds of things. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. Then that same evening, the young man will come and this girl will go and meet him. So even though she's saying, I hate him, she has not forsaken him. And that's what we're saying here. Many people say, I hate sin, but they have not forsaken sin. They are still going after sin. So repentance, true repentance, is not just admitting that what I've done is wrong but making a concerted effort not to go in that direction ever again. That brings me to the fourth thing that repentance connotes. Luke chapter 3, verse 7 to 14. This was when John the Baptist was preaching and he saw certain people come. Let's read it. Then he said to the multitude, that is John the Baptist, that came out to be baptized by him, basically speaking to the Pharisees who had come, it says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from the stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? Let me pause here. John the Baptist was saying, don't come merely to my baptism. You are brood of vipers. You still, you have the asp. The poison of asp is in you. The fatal sting of sin is still in you. Who warned you? And you are coming and you have not left these things up. He says, bring forth, bear fruit, meat for repentance. Fruit worthy of saying that I have repented. So repentance has fruit. And it is visible. So the people now asked him, how can we show that we are truly repented? Then, in verse 11, he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. There is something about when you repent from sin, it makes you selfless. It makes you willing to share. I'm not talking of this giving to pastors. No, 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 no. I mean giving to another person who does not have. Your next door neighbor, the brother sitting on the pews with you. What many of us do is we, we rush and give things to pastor because we think that by giving them to pastor, we are going to make it to heaven. That is dead works. And the Bible says you must repent from that kind of action. So here, John is saying, if indeed there is a change in your life, you should be willing to share of your clothes of your substance, of your food, with somebody else, not necessarily the pastor. In verse 12, Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. I see many people who say they are customs officers, because that's what it's like here. Because customs officers collect taxes. They say they are Christians. But they are cheating. They are stealing from the government. They are charging people money that is not going into the coffers. They are turning a blind eye when contraband is coming in. And they say they are Christians. They are not. They have not repented of sin. I see policemen who take a bribe and turn a blind eye so that injustice continues. And many of these people, they are Bible carrying people. No, that is, you have not repented of sin. You are merely carrying the Bible. It's not going to help you. It is dead works that you are doing. That's basically what we're talking about. When you go back to the basics, when you go to the foundation and you ask, how did you get born again? Many people cannot say, I used to be a sinner. They say, ah, before I used to do things on my own, but now I go to church regularly. That's not salvation. Now I can even give my food. No, that's not salvation. Salvation is because you sinned and Christ came and saved you from that sin. And now your life must show a life of holy living, godly living, righteousness, not iniquity. In verse 14, it says, Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Don't take bribes. Don't live above your means. Live as God wants you to. There are many Christians who are bribe takers in government. Thieves, looters in government. It doesn't matter the nation. It is a human problem to act contrary to God. And this is what it is. So the fourth leg of repentance, after you have realized that you have done something wrong, you acknowledge it in your heart, you admit it verbally, then you must start removing that thing that you did wrong with loathing of that thing and forsaking it, seeing it for what it is, that it is wrong. It is a crime against God. It is a sin against God. God hates it. So I also hate it. I don't even want it near my house. So maybe you were drunkard before you came to Christ. Now you have come to Christ. You remove everything associated with alcohol from your house. You were a cultist. Now you have come to Christ. You remove every emblem 
all those artifacts that they gave you in your initiation, whatever they call it, you go and burn them off. You have no business with it. Then we know that you have repented. And then the final one is that there must be a change of course. And you must begin to go in the right direction. So not only do I hate sin and forsake sin, I must now begin to live righteously. I must now begin to do what is right. So this is what repentance has to do. Repentance is about I'm going in a particular direction and I'm told that this direction is wrong. I agree now, haven't realized that it is truly wrong. I agree that it is wrong and I need to make a change. If I truly agree with it, I will say, indeed, this direction is wrong. So let me take the right direction. So I must ask what's the right direction and I'll go in the right direction. If I agree that the direction I'm going is wrong and I just stand, I have not repented. I'm still surveying. I'm still doubting if I'm about to take the right decision or the wrong decision. So I must agree that this direction is wrong. And if I agree that it is wrong, I must change course. I must search for the right direction and change course. That's what these people were doing when they said, so what do you want us to do? And then he now said, share your food, share your clothing. If you are a customs officer, stop taking bribes. Stop cheating the government. Be content with your pay. If you're a police officer, if you're a soldier or somebody in, in position of authority, stop abusing your authority and cheating people. You're a civil servant. Stop telling people to bring money before you do what you're going to do. Serve them. Serve the people. You are being paid for that purpose. Your pay is not enough. It's not a reason to cheat. And then you will carry the Bible. I've been to some civil service offices where somebody is playing a tape of a message, a church message. He's blaring in the office and at the same time collecting bribe. How has that fellow repented? He has not. So we have a problem in Christianity. People are claiming to have repented, but they are living worse than criminals. So repentance is a turning away from a course of action. You are now convinced by the Holy Spirit to be wrong and have accepted it to be wrong. And you are now turning to the proper course of action. That's repentance. Until there is a turning to the proper course of action, you have not repented. Some decades ago, we had the SU in our universities. We were not born again then. And one of the things that the SUs had, the scripture unionists, that's what they called them. They didn't ask, are you born again? They asked, have you repented? And that is the question which you ask. Have you repented? It's not, are you born again? Everybody is born again today. But how many have truly repented of sin? Have you turned away from sin? Have you turned your life around? Have you said to God, Lord, indeed I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. This thing I've been doing is wrong. You see, if you don't realize it to be wrong, you cannot repent. If you don't acknowledge it to be wrong, you have not repented. Even if you say you confess, but you don't hate it, you have not repented. And lastly, of course, if your actions do not show that you have repented, you have not repented. A second definition, which is more comprehensive of repentance, is that repentance is a permanent change of attitude. Permanent. It is an irreversible, when we talk of conversion, a conversion is an irreversible change or what we call a radical change. Changing a version, changing that fellow, converting that person to a different form from what he was before. To the point that you will not be able to recognize him if you were looking out for the old person. That's what we're talking about here. There must be a permanence in that change of that attitude, of that nature of that person towards sin, towards sinful living towards ungodliness, which is the result of a conviction by the Holy Spirit and an acknowledgement of guilt, of wrong, occasioned by a broken, contrite heart. Remember, we had spoken earlier of the type of heart you have. If your heart is not a good heart, you cannot repent. But if your heart is a good and honest heart, 
it will be broken and contrite when you hear the word of God saying to you that that thing that you did was sinful against God and God hates it. You'll be subdued. You'll be wondering, oh, I've done something wrong. And then as a result of that, it will now lead you to permanently change your action or behavior to that of righteousness. So if that has not taken place, you have not repented, my brother and sister. You may be going to church, but you have not repented. Repentance has to do with accepting. Let us talk repentance of, from sin, for example. Repentance from sin has to do with acknowledging that you are a sinner. First of all, the word of God brings you to the place where you realize that indeed what you are doing is sinful. And then you acknowledge that indeed it is sinful and admit that it is a wrong thing to do. Part of the admission is that I no longer want to live this way. I want to live a different life. And after all the confession, then we see you living that new life that different life, that life of righteousness where you are focusing on God and not on yourself. Then we say, that man has repented of sin. Repentance is not just the end result, but it is the process that will lead to the end result. So you cannot say, I've changed when you have not realized that you've sinned. When you have not acknowledged to yourself that you are indeed a sinner and you have not admitted that you sinned and that you need to drop that lifestyle. And then suddenly you just want to jump and say, I've changed. How have you changed? Just go to our churches today and see the way people live their lives. Even inside the church, you can see that they've not changed. All we're looking for is a way out of our quagmire, as it were. A way out of our problems. A way out of the challenges of life that we are faced with. But that's not it. What God is looking for is that repentant heart. You see, when a person repents, you can tell. Look at the example of David. When he repented, when he heard about the boy dying, he was saddened. He wasn't saying, well, at least I'm not dying. No, he was saddened. This boy did nothing wrong. Lord, save him. Why? You? I'm the one who sinned. But God said, no, there's a reason why I want the boy to go. And God took the boy away. And when the boy died, David jumped up and began to eat. And people were wondering, ah, you refused to eat when we're begging you to eat, when the boy was alive. The boy has died now. He said, of course, the boy is dead. What do you want me to do again? He's not coming to me. I'm the one going to meet him. But he has truly repented before God that I have sinned against you. I've not sinned against men. It's you that I sinned against. I've committed a grievous crime against you. So, my brothers and my sisters, repentance is such an important thing because it is not just something you do to come to Christ. It is also something that we do on a regular basis. In 1 John chapter 1, I'll read verse 7 to 9 or so. Yes, let me read from verse 7 to 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So anybody who feels that he's not a sinner is a liar. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what is the Bible telling us here? On a daily basis, we sin. We do things that are wrong. Even after we have been born again. What is sin? Sin is doing something contrary to God. God says, don't do this, you do it. We fall into these things. But there is a provision for us to always repent. When you are born again and you sin against God, the Spirit of God will quicken in you. So you sin, you did something wrong. Some people just dust it aside. No, you must acknowledge it instant, immediately. And say, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Sometimes God will tell you, you did something wrong. I want you to go and now and apologize. The action of going to apologize sincerely from your heart 
shows that you are truly repentant. That is the point we're trying to make. You cannot say I have repented, yet the actions that you are taking suggest otherwise. There must be sorrow for sin. I see people going to answer altar call, chewing, chewing gum, smiling, walking casually, no sorrow for sin, no understanding of the gravity of what offense they had committed. Just casually and leisurely going out there. Sometimes it might mean actually getting there to receive the conviction. The point is, there must be sorrow for sin. A godly sorrow. When we start looking at what repentance is not, we'll come to that. Where we will see people who have sorrowed not after a godly sort, but after a worldly sort. What we call regret because they were caught or because they are trying to avoid punishment. That's not repentance. You are trying to shirk your responsibility or accountability. That's what you're trying to do. Many people are running to church because somebody is pursuing them. It's not a bad idea in itself. But do you know that the reason why that man is able to even stretch his hand and touch you is because of sin in your life? The Bible says, a curse causeless shall not alight. If indeed you are free of sin, why would a curse come upon you? The Lord Jesus Christ said, the prince of this world cometh, but he findeth nothing in me. That is the state that we ought to be, where Satan will come and find nothing in us. Sorrow for sin. Hatred for sin, forsaking of sin, and a turning to God in faith. That's repentance from sin. When we talk of repentance from dead works, not minding that we have not seen what dead works is, we would say it is sorrow that we have been doing the wrong things. Works that are dead. Hatred for doing such works, so engaging in such activities. Forsaking doing such things, and then turning to God to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? That is repentance. The church needs to truly repent. There are many things that we are doing that has nothing to do with the word of God. Let me just give you an instance. Christmas. I've had many defenses on this issue of Christmas or no Christmas. And I've always wondered why we can allow our hearts to deceive us. Well, I know that the heart is a very deceitful thing. But that we can allow it to deceive us, I cannot understand. In the face of the word of God. I've always asked people, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose birthday you say you are celebrating, did he ever celebrate birthday once written in the Bible? Did you ever see him celebrate once? No. Did you see any of his disciples celebrate his birthday once? No. Yet, we say we are celebrating. We choose a date. I can never understand this thing. It's called dead walks. It's leading nowhere. What of Easter? Some people want to argue on Easter. And I say to them, but look, read the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I think 23 to 26 thereabout. The Lord made it clear in the scriptures. As often as you eat the bread and drink the wine, you do show the death. As often, not on a day. So where we come up with these things, I will never understand. Those are dead works. And we must repent of them. If we have truly repented of sin, to repent of dead works would be easy. But because many of us have not truly repented of sin, we are now able to pass off dead works as though it is okay. We look at something that is idolatrous and say that it is right. When indeed it is wrong. I want to challenge you. I want to ask you. Have you repented of sin? Have you come to the realization that you are actually a sinner? Have you acknowledged it in your heart and now verbalized it? Have you repudiated sin? Do you loathe? Do you hate sin? Have you forsaken sin? And are you now bent on living for righteousness? On living righteously, on living godly? If not, my brother, my sister, I plead with you. Go to God now in the quietness of your bedroom and say to him, Lord, I have sinned against you. For the first time in my life, I realized that I have sinned against you. I didn't realize it also. Today, I have realized that I have sinned against you. 
that I may see, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I don't want to have anything to do with sin ever again in my life. Remove it from my life and help me to begin to live for you henceforth. That, my brother, that, my sister, is repentance.